Welcome to Lessons in Leadership. I'm Steve Adubato with my co-host colleague, executive producer, Mary Gamba. Mary, how are you doing today? I'm doing really great, Steve. How about you this morning? I'm doing great. You know, we have Del Florio coming on, who is the uh, president of Jersey Sports Zone LLC. He's also been one of the most successful lobbyists down the state house in uh, Trenton. He knows more about leadership than most. First of all, tell us what Jersey Sports Zone is. And then the second question is, are we making too much of youth sports and teaching leadership? Well, first of all, Jersey Sports Zone is a uh, statewide uh, digital media company that uh, focuses on high school sports. Uh, we cover nine varsity sports, boys and girls, uh, you know, all three seasons. Uh, we name all state teams. We do feature stories, which I really love when we can get really what we say is we get beyond the score. Uh, and uh, we also do uh, weekly promotions where we recognize, uh, you know, best performance or best play and, you know, our viewers get to vote. So it's, a, it's, it's the new wave of how, you know, content is being delivered. And, you know, I think all of us, as I look at our age on this, uh, on this piece today, I mean, we grew up when there was weekly newspapers, we grew up when there was daily newspapers, and there'd be eight pages of sports. That's all gone away. So uh, the success of Jersey Sports Zone in three short years has filled that gap, and uh, the response has just been tremendous. You know, it's so interesting, whether we're talking about Edison, I was talking about Edison before in another conversation or this book on Netflix um, and Blockbuster uh, and the differences between the two cultures. Here's what strikes me about what Dale is saying. I, I was been a newspaper columnist for many, many, many years, wrote for the Ledger a Sunday column forever and a whole range of other Newspapers carried my syndicated column. You could sit there and pine over, oh, newspapers. And some of us still read them, if you're old enough. Oh, wow, what happened to newspapers? Dale's sitting there going, you know what? You know, we don't have a lot of print newspapers covering sports anymore. Wait a minute. What about if we pick up the rest? Well, you know, what if we uh, deliver what uh, kids and parents and grandparents want to see? And that's video. I mean, we can say a lot of good and bad about the social media explosion, but what we do know is that people's attention span is cap is is you know a couple minutes, and I'm I'm always amazed at a grandparent or a parent saying, "Well, I watched uh, this CNN piece. It was uh, you know 15 minutes." So we decided, you know, why not turn sports into a into a into video content? Uh, nobody was doing it. Uh, some of the, there were some national entities that try to raise a lot of money to come into the market. But we believe this has to be grown from the grassroots up and, and supported locally. And uh, that's what's been successful so far. I mean, we've got over 80,000 uh, viewers at this point uh, in just three short years. And with the season just starting uh, this past weekend, uh, football and soccer kicking back up uh, and dealing with the pandemic, I mean, the thirst for just getting back to some level of normalcy Steve, you talked about um, the importance of youth sports. Um, when I look at Princeton Public Affairs Group and I look at the folks that work with us, 80% of them played some level of high school sports and some even went into college. And I think what always attracted me to those individuals and vice versa was the competitive nature that one develops. Uh, you know, it doesn't have to be cutthroat, but you become competitive and you become disciplined and you have to take direction from a coach and you have to build some camaraderie with others. So there's so many life skills, as Mary pointed out, and what you get from the youth sports. I'm so happy my three kids did it. 
I had one son that went on and played college. The best thing for all three of them, and I see those characteristics play themselves out uh, in their work world now. So interesting. Uh, Mary, jump in here because I'm a big believer that no matter how talented your kids are or not, if they were on a team, mm -hmm. they're learning a whole bunch of leadership traits in terms of sportsmanship, a camaraderie. Um, and, and yeah, one of the biggest that uh, we don't like to have them learn is dealing with adversity and dealing with someone telling them, frankly, you're not good enough to make the AAA team or the AA team. And, and dealing with that adversity, I think definitely has helped both of my boys and other uh, youth uh, players that I've seen just learning how to sure it really hurts and it's really horrible and it seems like the end of the world, but you need to get yourself up, brush yourself off. So Dale, talk a little bit about that, about uh, the lessons that we learned in terms of adversity. Their life lessons. Go ahead. I mean, as, as Steve knows, uh, I just finished 18 years of coaching varsity basketball at three different schools. I mean, I found a way to squeeze it into my routine, and it was the best thing I ever did. One, it kept me in touch with kids, uh, but it also had gave me a chance as, an, as a first as a head coach and as a varsity as a, an assistant coach to look at kids beyond the first five. Right. I spent a lot of time watching the kids on the bench who weren't getting the minutes but constantly telling them how important it, how important they were to the team, right? Whether they were on the bench, they're cheering, what they did in practice. You know, you'd like to think you got through to some of those kids who wish they got more minutes, but that's to your point, Mary. I mean, the adversity of being said that you're not cracking the top eight that's going to get the playing time and how you deal with that. The one thing I would say is that I, saw, I started to see this uh, late in some of my uh, children's careers in um, – at the rec and travel level uh, is that we started handing out trophies just for everybody, you know, participation trophies. I never thought that that was a good idea and that, that continues today, right? Just because you participated, you get an award. I think, you know, if you're on a team, that's good enough from what you learn from a team. And, it, and if you're fortunate to win the championship or, you know, you finish in the top three, there should be some award, but I've never been a fan of participation uh, trophies. Why I think not, it, Dale? What does that have to do with the message it sends to young people and prepares them to be le real leaders, entrepreneurs, uh, innovators, people who succeed in the marketplace? And let's say very, if not cutthroat, incredibly competitive environments. Go ahead. Listen, uh, you don't want participators. You you want you want you want to build leaders, and as you've talked about, entrepreneurs. Beginning a, a, a an eighth place uh, ribbon in a in a swim meet, uh, I don't think teaches the, the child anything about you know dealing with a very competitive world. Uh, they should work harder the next time uh, to maybe get into that top three so that they get yeah. that third place ribbon because there are no other ribbons to be got. Yeah, I, I agree. I want to jump. Yeah, Good, I was right. just going to jump in right there. And it's because in the real world, if you're going for that raise, if you're going for that promotion, it's not just going to be enough that you show up to work every day. It's not going to be enough that you clock in at nine and you leave at five. You need to be competitive. You need to uh, really go out of your way to do something that makes you stand out. Take the initiative. Amen. Look, Mary, let's break this down beyond sports. And I've always said this, Mary, has done very well for with this company. She is not just gets paid well. I'm sure she thinks she deserves more and will tell me soon. But Mary's not a typical employee and we have a great team. But Mary is constantly going the extra yard, constantly not only available for me off hours, but hey, Steve, I've been thinking, what about if we did this or that? 
or why don't we? She's taking the lead. She's taking the initiative. She's taking more responsibility on, and frankly, she's not being forced to. And so here's the thing. So if Mary gets paid more, gets a bonus, and wow, it's not being fair to everyone. Being fair to me, it's interesting. Someone said to me, I'm a great leader because I treat everyone equally on my team. I said, that's what you do? You treat everyone equally? You should be treating everyone fairly, not equally, because they're all not equal. And people, some people think that's hardcore. You say, Dale, and then Mary jump back in. One of the things I tell people at Princeton Public Affairs Group, and you know, they- That's a lobbying kind of organization, one of the most powerful, successful in the state. Dale's voice and his team voice, team's voice matters. Go ahead, Dale. Thank you. Uh, I say anticipate, participate. In other words, you know, be pro be proactive. You know, you know, if something's not working right for us, or we don't, we're not handling something the right way. Speak up on the team. Uh, so anticipate it, but participate by telling us what needs to be changed. Just don't leave it up to the leaders of the firm. I mean, everybody. I say this to uh, assistants, administrative personnel. See, you know what's so interesting, Dale, Mary and I had this, not debate, but discussion before. I expect that from everyone on the team. And I think what you're implying, and if not stating explicitly, is sometimes team members are loyal, hardworking, they care, they're terrific, but they're waiting for Dale Flurry to tell them, quote, what to do. I argue that's not going to win. That's not going to succeed, you say? I, for, for sure. I think, you know, folks say, well, hey, you know, firm's doing great and uh, I'm going to rely on the leadership to make it happen. You know, that's that's when you get stuck in a rut. That's when you start doing the same thing over and over again because it was it was successful. But we, you know, we try to stay ahead of the curve uh, to the extent that we can. And but it takes everybody to do that. And I've been surprised. Well, actually not surprised, but I've been pleasantly surprised where a suggestion from one of our assistants is like, an aha moment, like, and, I, and I've used that to say, see, if you think uh, about how we can make this place better, uh, you just never know what's gonna make a lot of sense. So, but you know, I think there's also the, the intimidation factor of not wanting to speak up because I'm sure what I have to say probably would not be considered uh, worthy. So you, well, you say to all those people watching right now say, I'm not the number one, I'm not the number two. I'm just a good loyal soldier. I'm a team member. What's wrong with that? Tell them, tell them what they need to hear right now about this environment at this time, Dale, that is incredibly difficult to succeed in. When the pandemic broke, Steve, uh, you know, I'm sure every business, including ours, wondered, oh my God, you know, what is this going to mean? Uh, I could see it on the faces when we, we started Zooming, like, what is this going to mean from the, from the fear, a lot of fear, the partners. And, you know, what we quickly realized was that as government was going to be, help manage this pandemic, our needs were going to be demanded even more. Our, our, our services were going to be demanded more. And, you know, but we would have these sessions, you know, it's going to, there's going to be a new dynamic. Uh, the, the world is not going to be the same. It, it changed after 9-11. It's going to be different here. Everybody has to think. I mean, it, it, it's a simple message. But it's amazing how long it takes people to really think that I can make a difference within a successful operation. You know, uh, by the way, my sister, Michelle Adubato, the uh, CEO of the North Ford Center, is on the second half of the show. Um, she's going to talk about her view of innovation, creativity, brainstorming. Mary, 30 seconds, wrap it up. Anything mm -hmm. else? Any yeah. reaction to Dale? 
No, just, I just have to say, Dale, you were right on. And I hope that the people listening and those that are parents of young athletes understand. I know it's so hard. We all want to hug our kids. We want to protect our kids. But once they get 16, 17, 18, the world is a very cold place sometimes. So the more that you can let them learn how to fail, they will learn how to succeed and grow as a result of it. So I just wanted to say thank you for sharing that perspective. Real quick, as we go, Don, I'm going to say this to our daughter who was 10, and I'm the assistant to the assistant, assistant coach on her softball team. I coach third base because I'm a good cheerleader. She came to me and she said, Dad, I think I can pitch. I said, can you? She said, I want to try. All right. Yeah, but she said, what about if I don't do well? I said, I don't know, honey. Olivia, you got to get coached, train, work really hard. It's hard to pitch softball, fast pitching, right? We'll see what happens. But if you don't step up and try... 10 years from now or whenever, you oh, I should have been a pitcher. I could have been. No, get up and try. Failure is part of it, growing as well. I'll get off my soapbox. Dale Florio, our friend, uh, President, Jersey Sports Zone, LLC, managing partner, Princeton Public Affairs Group. Uh, all the best, Dale. Thanks, buddy. A great leader. Thanks, guys. Good to be with you. We'll be right back after this. This edition of Lessons in Leadership with me, Steve Adubato, and my colleague, Mary Gamba, is brought to you by Gibbons PC, the Bucino Leadership Institute at Seton Hall University, New Jersey Sharing Network, Prager Metis, Valley Bank, the International Union of Operating Engineers, Local 825, and Seton Hall University, showing the world what great minds can do since 1856. This is Mary Gamba. If you want more leadership tips and tools, log on to stand-deliver.com. Promotional support for this edition of Lessons in Leadership with me, Steve Adubato, and my colleague, Mary Gamba, has been provided by NJ On Air, CIANJ, and Commerce Magazine. I'll tell you what, one of the reasons I love this show, Lessons in Leadership, is you get to listen to folks like Dale Florio. Good stuff, right, Mary? Yeah, I want to stand up on a soapbox and yell to every parent out there listening, I'm talking to you. Let your kids fail. They're going to be okay. They're going to learn from it. So uh, I hope that uh, you learned something from listening to Dale, because I know that I did. Yeah, our son Chris was talking the other day. He goes, Dad, I'm way down in the batting order. He plays on his club team. Well, I'm better than so-and-so. I said, Chris, stop worrying about everybody else. Why don't you be the best hitter you can be? Get some hits. I guarantee you'll move up. But every time you waste time talking about other people, anyway, I'm off my I'm definitely <laughs> off my soapbox. Do your job. You, Throw to our next segment. Let's go. Uh, yeah, Mary, I'm being directed. I'm being you led. Are. By the way, the next segment's with my sister, Michelle, who is uh, my younger sister. I love her. She's great. Um, she's a terrific leader, heads up the Northward Center. My dad started it in 1970. Michelle's leading that legacy, moving forward, my dad's legacy. The Northward Center, a great national organization. Also, real quick. She had COVID early on, a very serious case. She talks about her experience and also has changed her as a person, as a leader. Listen, my sister, she's great. Not just because she's my sister, but because she's a great leader. On behalf of Mary and myself, thanks for watching Lessons in Leadership. Check out my sister, Michelle. We'll check you out next week. This is an interview I've been wanting to do for a while. Um, please welcome back to Lessons in Leadership, Michelle Adubato, the Chief Executive Officer of the Northward Center, an organization our father started in 1970, if I'm not mistaken. Michelle, how are you doing? I'm doing great. I have an important question to ask. You are in your home, correct? Correct. I do not see a picture of me behind you. Can you please explain the reasoning for that? I think your face is splattered all over the place anyway. Who needs to see a picture, right? I am sending a signed autograph picture to you today, my sister Michelle, my 
younger and more talented sister, Michelle. Hey, listen, you know, you actually did a leaders, lessons in leadership segment with us um, right before things got crazy with COVID. And uh, we never aired that interview. And your life changed dramatically early on in this pandemic when you um, got the virus. Describe not only, well, we'll talk about the impact that your serious uh, illness had in connection with the virus on your leadership, but talk and give people a, a sense of how bad it was. Um, it was, it's almost indescribable. When you ask to describe it, you're asking to describe something that you never thought in a million years that you know you would go through. It's not even the fact of how sick I was, which I was, you know, you, as you know. You're in the ICU for many, I'm, many days on the verge of being put on a ventilator. And I, full disclosure, I was talking, we, we all in our family spoke to the doctors every day, 20 times a day. Uh, you were in serious condition. Yes. And, uh, you know, the feeling back then in March was, you know, shock is an understatement. You're in a hospital where, you know, normally if you're in a hospital, you know, you hear people and you hear rustling about and people are walking in the hallways. That's not the case. Um, that was not the case. Everything was quiet because nobody was there because only essential workers were there, meaning the nurses and the doctors. And, uh, you know, every uh, so often, probably about four or five times a day, I'd hear the code. And I'd, you know, I learned to figure out what that code meant. And that code meant that somebody was dying. Somebody was being put on a, 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 a ventilator. And, you know, I had found out that I was the two people were not put on a ventilator, myself and someone else. And everybody else on the floor was on a ventilator. Um, to say that that was an eye-opening experience is, is an understatement. Um, and, you know, it was an experience certainly I'll never forget. And it has changed my life. How it so? My life. Well, I think you learn um, who the people are that you learn to live with yourself, if that makes any sense. Uh, I never put a TV on. I never, people are like, what did you do all day? I'm like, I was trying to survive. Um, I was literally trying to move. I learned a lot about myself. I learned, quite frankly, how strong I could be. Um, I learned who cared. And by the way, most people did. Most people do. Um, I learned about my family. I learned about what was really important in life. I learned that those days, those times when I was almost, you know, uh, having a very difficult time breathing, I learned why I had to breathe and why I should breathe and why just moving my toe meant something. And um, it was a long recovery. Um, people were- it, ha it continues to be a long recovery. It's unbelievable. I just don't think anyone understands, unless you've been through it, what it means to recover from this. Like, so when you have COVID, you're in emergency mode. You're just, and I mean, serious COVID. And I'm not underestimating when people are home. I'm sure they feel horrible. Well, times that by 10 being in the hospital and whatever I was going through, somebody else was going through something worse. Um, but being in the hospital is one thing. You're just trying to survive. You're trying to survive. You're trying to breathe. You're trying to move. 
I mean, my pulmonologist, who I learned to hate, believe it or not, and I said, I said, I really don't like you. He goes, my job is not for you to like me. My job is to get you to breathe. He was screaming and yelling at me, you know, breathe or else we're going to have to put you on. I had a big blockage in my lung. I know. Um, so that was about breathing and surviving. And then when you got home, it was a completely different thing. You felt horrible. You couldn't move. You were tired. And, and mentally, the mental toll and emotional toll was just, it was devastating. It really was. And, and without the people around me and without my family and, and purpose, um, I don't think I would have made it. And what I mean when I say purpose, I mean, you have to have a reason, real reason, and understand why you're here. Uh, my family has been wonderful. Let me clarify something. The Northward Center, an organization our dad started in 1970 that Michelle leads today, is a multi-service, uh, not-for-profit organization based, based in Newark, New Jersey that does, and by the way, their website will be up. Check them out. Uh, Michelle and her team, they do extraordinary work, and um, they make a difference in the lives of people who are the most vulnerable. Let me ask you this, because this is lessons in leadership. How do you believe your very personal and painful experience experience with COVID has impacted your leadership? Well, I made a promise to myself and to my staff that I would never ask anyone to do something I wouldn't do. And I, I think that that's something that really affected me in terms of, I think there's a lot of people talking right now, we, what we should do, we should go back to schools, we should reopen the economy. And, and I don't take any of that lightly and I understand um, you know, the reasons for doing, uh, you, you know, for people saying what they're saying, but until you go through it, until you're there, whether, you know, again, varying levels of what, what people have gone through. So when I decided to open the North Ward Center, it certainly was an agonizing decision because I don't want anyone, anyone to go through what I went through. So I am very protective um, of my employees and, and the community and uh, what that could mean, regardless of whether they understand what it means to them or not, if that makes sense. Mm. Because I don't think that people have, it, it seems as if, if people haven't gone through it, they're kind of like, yeah, if it happens, it happens. No, it's not that simple. It really isn't. How has, because right before we did this interview, or we started our part of the interview, I watched you struggle with the technology. Uh, apparently, it's a family trait. <laughs> so my question is this. You're a really hands-on, in-person, engaging person. And that's, you know, our, our father was that way as a leader as well. <clears throat> Only, let's say, a bit more aggressive than the two of us, which is hard for our staffs to imagine. That being said, how hard has it been for you to be a remote leader and communicator? I, I think that, you know, you're, you're absolutely right. We're, we're hands-on people, you know, we, we like to get in there and, you know, I miss that aspect of it. And, you know, when I did decide to begin to reopen the North Ward Center and to begin to have meetings again, some meetings, by the way, um, in person, and when I say in person, we're in a huge tent <laughs> we're like, You're outside meetings. We're outside. I have meetings outside. I tell people where I wear t-shirts to work. You know, like it's going to be 95 degrees. By the way, we're taping on August 13th. This will be seen later. Yeah. I'm going to see Michelle running an outside meeting in November. She'll I'm, probably I'm do it. Coat on. I'll I think she's going to do it. 
I will. Up until the end. <laughs> Whatever that is. No. Um, exactly. But, so, uh, so, so, so you, you, do you appreciate the in-person, outside, under the tent communication more than you ever have appreciated interpersonal communication before? Well, here's the thing what I learned is to get to your point. If that, like, don't beat around the bush. You don't have time for it. So get, you, get your point out, get what you have to say, and none of this small talk stuff. Are meetings shorter? Are meetings shorter oh, than Much they? shorter, much shorter, much shorter. And I'm the how one who- our dad's meeting? When, when Steve oh, Senior had a meeting, how long would they go on? Oh, endless. <laughs> My meetings are short. I, listen, I'm the one who goes, I'm, I'm the one who says, I've had it, I'm done. <laughs> I, I know, I know. I'm sorry, by, by the way, mom's gonna be mad at us for saying that dad ran a long meeting that he did all the talking for. Just, uh, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna blame you for that, by the way. First of all, I would not call that, I don't think technically that was a meeting, it was a lecture. <laughs> he used to call it's, a meeting going my, to church. Father, you know, to dad, church. Our dad would say, you're gonna do what I tell you to do. That's his <laughs> That was his, he said, what are you writing this book, Lessons in Leadership for? Just ask me, I'll tell you what it is. Yeah. I, you know, that being said, I'm gonna try this in a limited time we have, by the way, Michelle's also going to be joining us with uh, Marsha Atkin from the Healthcare Foundation of New Jersey and uh, Councilman Anibal Ramos um, on our sister public television uh, platform talking about a whole range of issues as well. But this is focused on leadership. Let me ask you this. Uh, are you, you're an impatient person. I am an impatient person. We're impatient leaders. We have a sense of urgency, sometimes appropriate, sometimes not, even though we're not the same exact leader. Are you any more patient or are you less patient because of your COVID experience? Uh, it's interesting. I wrote that word down, patience. <laughs> I wrote it down. I write it down a lot. <laughs> hey, hold on. Wait a minute. You didn't answer the question. Are you saying you have to practice I do. patience? I do. I have to practice patience. It doesn't come natural. <laughs> I have to, not just patience, I think the word is impulsiveness too. Um, sometimes I could be a little impulsive in my actions. And no way. <laughs> you're better. I have to tell you, you're better at that than I am. That's for sure. But well, our staff is our staff is all of our producers and our team. They're like, are you kidding me? <laughs> How bad must the rest of the autobots be? Uh, I, I, those those I actually write that word down. I'm, I actually. Before I go into meetings, I talk to my, do that self-talk, Michelle, listen. How does it help you? How does it help you? It does help. It does help. So I think one of the things this has definitely changed for me, there is a, certainly a sense of urgency. Um, but within that, you have to afford and allow for that patience for people to get where you're, where you're at, or they're going to teach you something that you need to learn about this. And... So I do write those words down and I practice it. And I, I think I'm a bit better. Now, maybe my staff just fell over. Yeah, yeah. Keep practicing. Hey, listen, one of the key chapters in Lessons in Leadership that Michelle has read four times so far, um, I charged her every <laughs> time I sent her a book. Oh, I'm sorry. That being said, one of the chapters is uh, Great Leaders are Lifelong Learners. And it's another way of saying, look, I didn't write the book Lessons in Leadership to say, wow, I'm such a great leader, do what I do. Half the book is about screw-ups, mistakes, things I wish I hadn't said or done. So anyone who says, yeah, how could he write that book with all the mistakes he makes? That's the point. 
lifelong learning as a leader means you make mistakes and you learn from them. I wish more of our public officials would practice that and others, but let me ask you this in that spirit. About practicing our public officials, they need to also practice, you know, vulnerability and not thinking that they have all the answers. And I think it's one of the things we need to, you know, really be honest with ourselves is that we may not have the answer. And it doesn't make you less of a leader if you're not, when someone says, I'm smarter than the generals, I'm smarter than, no, you're not, don't have to be the smartest, you have to be the most effective. By the way, I'm running out of time, Michelle. Well, Last message to everybody, go ahead. My message, and, and I'm gonna say this, I have to say this to you, um, you are my rock. I'll never forget it. You're my big brother, and I love you. You are my rock. You are the best. I had to say that. You weren't I supposed to do that. that. I practiced that too without trying. <laughs> you weren't supposed to do that. I love you, Michelle. Love you right back. Sorry for doing this all publicly, everyone. Um, I'm Steve Adubato. That is uh, the much tougher, stronger Michelle Adubato. Goodbye, folks. We'll see you next time. This edition of Lessons in Leadership with me, Steve Adubato, and my colleague, Mary Gamba, is brought to you by Gibbons PC, the Bucino Leadership Institute at Seton Hall University, New Jersey Sharing Network, Prager Metis, Valley Bank, the International Union of Operating Engineers, Local 825, and Seton Hall University, showing the world what great minds can do since 1856. This is Mary Gamba. If you want more leadership tips and tools, log on to stand-deliver.com. Promotional support for this edition of Lessons in Leadership with me, Steve Adubato, and my colleague, Mary Gamba, has been provided by NJ On Air, CIANJ, and Commerce Magazine.